Hello and welcome to Little Yo, the podcast, or Little Yo Pod, a podcast about Yosemite National Park, the place, the people, and all the things that make this little slice of heaven so special. My name is Laura Jackson, and I am an interpretive guide naturalist in Yosemite. I lived in Yosemite on and off, mostly on since 2004. Um, right after my first year in college, and uh, discovered something about that place that a lot of people discover when they get there. Um, however, for many of them, um, they can they leave <laughs> and go back to their normal lives. I stayed. Uh, I found a place that I loved and decided to make it my permanent home. Um, and uh, I have to be honest with you, though, I am actually recording this remotely. Uh, I have actually taken the winter off from Yosemite, and I am now in Portland. But it's because I took this time off that I am able to uh, produce this podcast, which has been a dream of mine for a long time. And it's the first of its kind, um, specifically about Yosemite um, by someone who is a part of that community. So I've been living and working there uh, for the past 15, going on 16 years now. And most recently, um, I have had the great privilege and honor of being an interpretive naturalist uh, and guide in the park. And so what that means is that I get to spend my days out in the field studying ecosystems and uh, doing research on my own in office time, uh, in an office environment. Um, and then I get to take what I learn uh, from my own studies and from others, and I get to then share that with visitors to Yosemite. Um, so it's a, it's a really neat opportunity for visitors to get to know Yosemite National Park a little bit better from people who actually live and work there and who have an enormous love and compassion for the place and for education as well. Most of the programs that we offer are free. Uh, the National Park Service has programs, all of their programs are free, and then the entity that I work for um, we have uh, mostly free programs with a couple of paid programs in there as well. Um, every single one of them is well, well worth your time and effort. Um, everyone, every interpreter that I have ever met has been incredible, uh, goes above and beyond to bring this content to you. And I'm just one in a team of massively um, just talented people. So... Hopefully, I'll get to get some of them uh, on this podcast in the near future. So this is the inaugural episode of uh, Little Yo, the podcast, or Little Yo Pod. Um, and uh, thanks for listening, and thanks for joining. Hopefully, you learn a little bit of something and uh, uh, share this uh, information, this content with other people. Um so, uh, so I'm here to share some of the aspects of Yosemite that I find uh, compelling. And this podcast is for anyone interested in nature, Yosemite, anyone who's visiting currently, anyone who has visited, anyone who's wishing to visit, or, you know, if you just have a general fascination with uh, 
flora and fauna and history um, and how that all has played into um, the park and national parks and the United States in general and, you know, even the world. So, but before we dive in, I want to make it clear that this is a personal project and this podcast and its content are in no way affiliated uh, with the National Park Service or uh, any concession services in Yosemite National Park. This is a personal uh, project, so um, unaffiliated in every way, produced and written by me and hosted as well. So any complaints, <laughs> criticisms uh, go directly to me. Um, so... The name of this podcast is Little Little Yosemite or Little Yo, and uh, let me uh, and let me explain a little bit about that name first of all. Um, wanting to be a little bit more clever than just the Yosemite podcast or something like that, uh, I decided to go with um, the uh, the name that we have that locals affectionately have given to a part of Yosemite National Park called Little Yosemite Valley, and for those of you who don't know, Yosemite National Park is uh, pretty big. It's uh, roughly the size of Rhode Island, so the size of a small state um, as landmass goes. Uh, but most people who visit um, come only to Yosemite Valley, which is a seven mile long by one mile uh, wide stretch of the park. It's very it's a very small part of the park, but it's sort of like the heart of Yosemite National Park. It's um, a glacial uh, a glacier carved valley. Um, it's very unique and it has these really uh, uh, sheer granite cliffs that surround it about 3,000 feet high on all sides and a nice big flat uh, surface at the bottom um, with a river that meanders through it. And uh, if you have never been to Yosemite, um, I just encourage you to Google image uh, some of the formations there, such as Half Dome or El Capitan or Washington Column. Um, those are some prominent rock features that we have in Yosemite Valley that uh, most people are familiar with. If you uh, have been keeping up with uh, movies, then you may have seen either The Dawn Wall or Free Solo, both of those films uh, about climbing El Capitan, um, uh, our granite monolith <laughs> in the park. Um, and uh, you may have also uh, seen pictures of what we call um, the uh, the glow on a horsetail falls or what has sort of been... Uh, dubbed the firefall, though that's a totally different thing. Um, but it's a uh, light hitting a waterfall coming off of El Capitan for about uh, 10 days in February every year um, that makes it glow and looks like a little waterfall of fire that's coming off the top of that cliff. So it's just a very, very dynamic place, um, visually, uh, ecologically. Um, there's a lot of human history there as well. And I hope that we will be able to dig into all of that in future episodes. 
But to, uh, oh, yes. So, of course, um, Little Yosemite Valley is a valley that uh, sits above Yosemite Valley to the east of it. Um, and it's just another little glacier carved valley, um, but much, much smaller. And uh, it's a nice place to day hike to, or you can even camp there if you're planning on summiting a Half Dome, a very unique granite formation we have in the park as well. Um, a lot of people camp at Little Yosemite Valley. It's just kind of a special little place and kind of a cute name. So that's why uh, that's why I have given that name to this podcast. And uh, I feel like these little bits are just little pieces of Yosemite as well. So Little Yo seemed to fit, uh, seemed to fit that profile for a name. Uh, but to kick off the inaugural episode of Little Yo, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, the flora of Yosemite. Now, Yosemite, um, as I stated earlier, is quite large. It's uh, and it has a good elevation profile. It goes from about oh gosh, I want to say one thousand, maybe fifteen hundred feet, up to over thirteen thousand feet at its highest peak. Um, in elevation. So that's a, that's quite an elevation profile. Um, it's a good size, has a lot of different, uh, rivers and streams that run through it. Um, just many different life zones. In fact, there are five different life zones in the park, um, that mirror, uh, uh, environments such as, um, Mexican, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, the landscape of Mexico, to the landscape of uh, Alaska. So yeah, it's a very diverse place ecologically. Um, and so we have a really great diversity of plants and animals and ecosystems. Uh, but it was one type of tree in particular in the park that so captured the hearts and the imaginations of early pioneers. And some people to this day give this tree credit uh, for the birth of the entire uh, national park idea in the United States. So without further ado, allow me to introduce you to Sequoia Dendron Gigantium, or Giant Sequoias. So Giant Sequoias um, are these just spectacular trees in the park. Um, there are about... 75 groves of giant sequoias in California, uh, over a 260 miles, uh, stretch of land or strip between 5,000 and 7,000 feet in elevation, uh, on the Western slope of the Sierra Nevada. Giant sequoias grow in deep glacial soil. Um, they take advantage of the warm, warmer temperatures on the Western side of the Sierra Nevada, uh, as, uh, compared to the Eastern Sierra, which is quite cold, um, and the abundance of moisture that comes in from the Pacific ocean. So giant sequoias drink a lot of water, uh, because they are among the largest living things on the planet. A giant sequoia can grow anywhere from uh, 200 to 300 feet tall on average, and some, uh, which, so that's not very tall, the tallest trees are the coastal redwoods, which are uh, a, a relation to the giant sequoia, um, 
but uh, they're not the tallest trees, but they're the largest. They're actually really wide. Some of the mature trees are 20 to 30 feet in diameter near the base. Um, so that's about the size of a small school bus or the length of a small school bus. And uh, giant sequoia branches alone are the size of some mature pine trees at about eight feet in diameter. The largest giant sequoia is the General Sherman, and that is in uh, Sequoia National Park, not in Yosemite. Uh, It has a mass of 52,500 cubic feet and weighs 14 tons. And uh, that's been... uh, that's about the equivalent to 1515 blue whales. Uh, massive, massive trees. It's estimated that the lumber from the General Sherman could build about 120 average sized homes. So that's 120 homes uh, from the lumber of one tree. Yeah, so they're, they're pretty big. <laughs> Giant sequoias also have an impressive lifespan. Many mature trees are at least a thousand years old. The oldest known giant sequoia is 3,266 years old. So that means that that seed would have sprouted around 1246 before current era or BCE. Sequoias have many advantages that allow for their long lifespans. Um, For one thing, they are impressively fire resistant. And uh, this is due to the high level of tannic acid in their bark, among other things. Uh, The tannic acid gives the sequoias their signature reddish or cinnamon color. And it also adds a level of protection as a natural flame retardant. It's actually the chemical that's used in... Uh, fire extinguishers, I believe. So tannins also deter insect infestations. I'm under the impression that tannic acid is quite bitter. Um, So uh, oak trees also, or black oak trees also contain a lot of tannic acid, uh, which makes their acorns uh, very bitter. Um, We'll be talking about those a little bit later on as well. So uh, they are resistant to insect infestation as well. And their bark is super thick, about two to three feet thick on larger trees. And it's really spongy. It holds a lot of air and moisture. And if you um, smack or wrap on the side of a giant sequoia, it'll sound like almost hollow. And you'll feel that give in the bark as well. It's quite spongy. Although I don't condone this activity, um, years of human hands on sequoias will eventually degrade their bark over time. So while sequoias make excellent homes to countless species of birds and other critters such as squirrels, um, fortunately for them, their lumber is not ideal as building material. And this was discovered when the first sequoia was felled by gold miners in California around 1853. Uh, The chopping down of the giant sequoia, the first giant sequoia that was uh, cut down, took three weeks. And the tree uh, just totally splintered and busted on impact. So the wood was uh, just too brittle for building, um, but the trees were cut down anyway, uh, many of them for the purpose of exhibition. So no one had ever seen trees of this size, and Western pioneers only arrived in California starting in 
um, well, most of the, the mass migration started in 1849 with the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill. So we had a huge population boom, which meant that a lot of areas that hadn't been explored uh, were being explored, and that included Yosemite Valley, the first Western European pioneers entered in 1851, and the sequoias were found not... or. Um, found by them, I guess, uh, not too long after that. So the, <clears throat> the pioneers trying to explain the just massive size of giant sequoias and found it um, hard to convince their friends and loved ones back on the East Coast or elsewhere about the size of these trees. So they found a more convincing uh, argument or was to cut sections of the trees down and to be sent around the world. And, you know, some were even sent to England. Um, just these big giant, we call them, I guess, cookie cuts or plates of the trees um, large enough to, you know, perform as a dance floor in some situations. So not long after the first sequoias were chopped down, um, some other fun things were happening. So this is when tunnels were cut through uh, the base of the trees and uh, the tunnels allowed the passage of carriages and stagecoaches through. So these are trees so large you could pass a stagecoach through. Uh, and this became a massive draw for early tourists to Yosemite. Possibly the most photographed tree in the world is the Wawona tree or tunnel tree in Yosemite, which toppled over uh, during the winter of 1969 uh, during a heavy snowstorm. Go figure. So the tree had a big hole cut through the middle of it, uh, and it was left then quite weak and unable to um, defend itself against those heavy snows and winds. Um, that was also, uh, 1969 was also the year that the famed Glacier Point Hotel burned down, and we'll talk more about that in a later episode. So concern for the trees and the beauty of Yosemite Valley began to rise. In the 1860s, as early tourism and private concession services began to shape the future of the admired landscape. The value of an inspiring land changed from one of industry, what feeds the pocketbook, to the intrinsic value a place like Yosemite and the big trees offered to one's heart or one's soul. Uh, a junior senator in California in the 1860s named John Kness pushed a bill toward Congress calling for the Yosemite, or it was called the Yosemite Land Grant, which would set aside Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias for preservation and public enjoyment. The Yosemite Grant was the first attempt of its kind to preserve land for everyone, not just for the wealthy and elite, as was the norm in European countries up to that point, but for every person, every person on the planet to appreciate and relish as they wished. So the bill passed both the House and the Senate, and President Lincoln signed the bill on June 30th, 1864. This was at the height of the Civil War, and it was one of the most violent and bloody times in United States history. President Lincoln would never set foot in Yosemite. He would never see the towering granite cliffs. He would never see the plunging waterfalls or giant sequoias. No one can say for certain what he was thinking when he signed the grant. He had photos Perhaps he knew there would be a long and difficult road to recovery following the Civil War, but found comfort and hope for his country that a place in California had the potential to level the playing field for all, to give us something to love, 
something to stand behind and something to be proud of and something to potentially bring a nation back together. The signing of the Yosemite land grant gave America a new mission to protect beautiful and inspiring places for all to enjoy, regardless of race, religion, sex, age, or socioeconomic status. It would inspire the protection of Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon, the Great Smoky Mountains, Rocky Mountain National Park, Joshua Tree, the Everglades, hundreds of national parks and national monuments from sea to shining sea. And it all started over 3,000 years ago as a tiny, fortunate seed germinating and growing at just the right time in just the right place into the magnificent giant sequoia that today feeds the hearts and imaginations of millions of people year after year. You can visit the Mariposa Grove today in Yosemite National Park. The grove hosts over 500 mature giant sequoias. A restoration project started in 2015 was completed in 2018. Improvements to the grove included restoring wetland habitats, realigning roads and trails located in sensitive habitat, and adding free shuttle services from a welcome interpretive center to the grove. Uh, building trails to improve visitor access and experience without negatively impacting the sequoias and sensitive areas. The completion of the Mariposa Grove restoration ensures the grove will be protected for future generations to enjoy for years to come. The hope for visiting these places is that they will remain intact and unspoiled. So the Mariposa Grove you see today will be the Mariposa Grove you will see with your future generations. There are a lot of challenges on the horizon for natural spaces and ecosystems. The changing climate means all species are having to adapt much more quickly than some of them may be capable of. So we are really fortunate to live in this time to have the opportunity to enjoy these precious places and species, uh, some that won't be along or that won't be around for much longer. Many things will change in the next 50 to 100 years, and many places once familiar may become unrecognizable to us. So next time you find yourself in the company of an extraordinary wilderness and natural beauty, take a moment to slow down and appreciate the opportunity to be there in just the right place at just the right time. Thank you so much for listening to the inaugural episode of Little Yo, the All Things Yosemite podcast. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and let me know what you think on Instagram at Little Yo Pod, Twitter at Little Yo Pod, or email me at littleyopod at gmail.com. I'm Laura Jackson. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful day.